Welcome to Voice for a Worthy Cause, a podcast for those interested in marketing and philanthropy for not-for-profit organisations. Welcome to the first ever episode of Voice for a Worthy Cause. My name is Anthony Pearl. I will be one of your two co-hosts as we take this journey together, looking at not-for-profit organizations through the eyes of philanthropy and marketing. Our goal is really to bring you insights using our experience and expertise, as well as that of our networks, to help your organization grow. And when I say we, I'm talking about my co-host, Lawrence Jackson, who you're going to hear from shortly. Lawrence's background is very much in the fundraising and philanthropy space, as well as social marketing and corporate social responsibility. Whereas I, on the other hand, very much embedded in the marketing and communication side of things. I've done everything from strategy to branding, from brochures to annual reports, websites, social media. When it comes to marketing, I've been involved with it. And we've both combined got many, many decades of experience, too many to mention. And we've worked across everything from health to education, from research to associations and aged care, from youth services, homelessness, you name it, we've been involved with it over a long period of time. Our goal with this podcast is to really use our combined expertise as well as that of our extended networks to bring you information which will help your not-for-profit, your worthy cause to grow. What we've done is we've recorded presentations with some of the leading experts in the not-for-profit sector. And over a series of podcasts, we will bring them to you. We've broken them up into bite-sized chunks to make it nice and easy for you to consume when you want to. We are going to welcome your feedback and any questions that you might have, we will endeavor to put to the uh, people that bring you these presentations so that we can add them to future podcasts. So by all means, please, where you've downloaded or, or you're listening to this podcast, have a look for the link to voiceforaworthycause.com.au, fill in the form and send us your uh, insights and even suggestions as to who you might like to hear in, from in coming episodes. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Lawrence Jackson, who will in turn introduce our first guest, what I should apologize for just very briefly is we had a little bit of a hiccup with the audio in the uh, first 20 or 30 seconds of Lawrence's introduction. So without further ado, let me hand over to Lawrence Jackson. first thing I'd like to do is acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, on whose lands we meet today, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Um, the second thing I'd like to do is, um, I guess, 
a little context before I get into the presentation proper. As Lawrence said, um, I come out of uh, government. I had 18 years in government. So I was a fund giver, not a fund raiser. Um, the board employed me under false pretenses. There's not mine. Um, saying, don't worry about fundraising. You don't need to worry about it. It's easy. Um, go out there, use all your public policy and advocacy skills. Fundraising will take up about 20% of your time. Not true. Um, the other bit of context is when I started in the job, I'd not long come out of having developed up a philanthropy session when the Forbes 500 Asia-Pacific Rich List came out to Australia. And... Um, and so armed with all of the knowledge of putting on a two-hour session and all the enthusiasm that that engendered, I turned up at the Heart Foundation and went, brand like this, we've got to get into major gift fundraising. No problem at all. Well, naivety is a really powerful weapon for good sometimes because if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have had the confidence or the chutzpah to go ahead with it. So I just want you to know who you're listening to and take all of that into account as we go along. As Lawrence said, this uh, study tour was a donation from one of the people that was on our Major Gifts fundraising panel when the Heart Foundation kicked off what was its inaugural um, Major Gifts campaign. Um, this particular person who's gone on to be a major donor more broadly um, has become a bit of a mentor um, like a lot of people that give very experienced in raising funds as well. And he gave me $10,000 to travel overseas and learn from people who are doing it well. And one of the commitments that I made, although he didn't require that, is that I shared the insights from the trip as broadly um, as possible and with as many people who would listen to me. Um, so it was a fabulous trip and there's nothing like a purpose-driven trip because even the social interactions on it all added value. Uh, I went to San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Boston, Stanford and London. Um, the purpose was to learn from successful charities. Um, it was a bit broader than Major Gifts. It was really to see what they're doing and what kind of diversity, successes, failures and those types of things but underpinning all that a core focus on Major Gifts. So these are the people that I saw. Salesforce, many of you will be using a Salesforce platform of some kind or another. <coughs> but what is interesting is um, their philanthropy model internally to their business. It's one of the most sophisticated that I've seen. Cedar Sinai's Americares. I don't know if people know about Americares, but um, it's... Um, it's a group that, and I just can't quite remember the, the figures, but say they're a $100 million a year business. About 70 of that's in kind and about 30 is cash. And the 70 in kind is surgical equipment, medical supplies, etc. And then the 30 is used to mobilise um, people when there's a disaster. So they're the people there if there's Ebola. They're the people there post-earthquake and those types of things. Quite a different model than um, Medicine Sans Frontier, but some good learnings from these guys. Um, we went, of course, to the American Heart Association, um, Ju Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, Dana-Farber, um, 
stem cell biology, multiple sclerosis, Memorial Sloan Kettering, Macmillan, Cancer Research UK and the British Heart Foundation. What I hope you will find um, useful is some of these aren't anything like the Heart Foundation. Their products and their business models entirely different. But some of them, um, in particular National Multiple Sclerosis Society, the American Heart Foundation and the British Heart Foundation, are very similar business models and very similar purposes for their sectors. So when we went over there, they were still, many of the people we spoke to were still reeling, in fact, from the global financial crisis. And they'd recovered somewhat but not fully. So as well as the challenges that we see as a sector here, they were also suffering those deeper challenges. Many of you will know that in the UK in particular, um, there really are um, what I used to call when I was in government, the lawnmower response to things that are happening outside. And by that I mean a man cuts off his toe with his lawnmower, so we now ban lawnmowers. Um, and really much of what's happening in the UK, as awful as it is, you can actually look at it and say, you know, the knee-jerk responses by regulation aren't necessarily forwarding the best interests of the community as a whole. The charitable sector isn't the enemy, it's the third sector. Um, some of the changes move to an opt-in system rather than opt-out of any correspondence that you get um, and charity no zones for face-to-face. -face. Conservatively, every one of the charities that we met over there estimate uh, about a £10 million uh, pound per annum hit to their bottom line. Interesting to me, though, was their responses and how diverse those responses were. Some were very technical, tighten your contracts, but the best of them were outcomes focused. So the contracts with their suppliers were focused on the outcomes and the values that they as a charity wanted to achieve. Um, quality assurance, monitoring, which you would think would just be part of your baseline, but wasn't even for the bigger charities. Um, but what I thought was the standout was really understanding your regulatory environment, knowing what it is you needed to do, but actually focused, if you've got an opt-in system, and you are totally focused on the quality of the experience your donor or your stakeholder has, irrespective of where they enter your organisation, then the chances of them opting in and staying with you on the journey is immediately enhanced. And so I actually thought that putting that at the forefront and all of the compliance stops, still being very careful, doing that as you should but driven by the value of making sure that your customer wanted to stay with you seems to me a terrific way to deal with what is otherwise um, potentially a threat, not just a challenge. So general observations from me, the British Heart Foundation and um, the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, I just think they were outstanding examples and any, you know, if you can make relationships, linkages, have a look at some of the things that um, they're doing – there are charities that are more like the Heart Foundation, so perhaps that w that's why it resonated so well with me. Um, something for Australia and the US of those charities that had a federated structure, all of them were on some part of the pathway to a single entity. Not as a fix-it, but as the necessary preconditions for efficiency and success. Um, 
the other thing that I don't see as much of over here was um, in the US they're much less risk averse than we are here. I mean that permeates the culture from, you know, startups and innovation through to the charitable sector. But instead of talking about failure, it's actually about experimentation and learning um, and the fact that you've got to try new things and not all of them will work and that's okay. Um, I don't see a lot of that in this country. The other thing, um, and I had a conversation with an ex-Heart Foundation person out um, in the foyer and one of the things they said was they went to this new organisation and the revenue team got a revenue increase to their budget and it was the first time in her experience that that had happened. Um, You've got to invest in revenue generation and that's a broader church than just your fundraising team but you've got to invest in it. Um, The other thing that was completely mind-blowing to me were the numbers of staff involved. We see a bit of that in the university sector but the numbers in some of these institutions were in the hundreds. Um... And, and that was because your cost of fundraising is a function of how much funds you raise. Um, it was all about being outcomes focused and target setting and those types of things. It's, so what if you've got 60 fundraisers if they bring in a couple of million dollars each? Um, the other thing that was different than what I've seen in the Heart Foundation traditionally is those people who were the recipients of the funds in our case, a large number of them are researchers, were actually integrally involved in selling the business. And it wasn't even a precondition of funding. It was so deeply ingrained as a culture. The other thing is that very things that we've all tried were just completely systematised. So community fundraising in a lot of the big organisations, they really had community champions they developed whether it was toolkits or, or what it was um, and and they facilitated rather than actually being on the ground doing all of that work themselves. And in fact, one of the institutes that I visit, visited had its own heart foundation um, and that heart foundation was in fact a committee of wealthy folk who put on a ball every single year um, at their own expense and raised three or four million dollars, um, sometimes two sometimes five, but in that ballpark. Um, Nothing that's going to be a surprise, um, except I did find it interesting to see how divergent the views on moving donors up and down the giving pyramid was. My own instinct as a fundraiser of uh, four years um, is that it's the quality of experience and, and that that's what makes the difference and having your team ready to respond to people as they move themselves up the donor pyramid. That's the places that I observed as being very effective. That seems to be the balance that they played um, out. Um, As much as I think we're starting to sort of move a, a bit away from events in Australia, they're still really significant in the US and the UK and not just as fundraisers in their own right, but as those donor touch points and the way that the organisation actually gets to show its wares and speak about itself and have its 
boards and its senior executive and its stakeholders actually show um, why they exist. Um, cost of fundraising varied from 12 cents. I don't believe any of this, but um, <laughs> the cost of fundraising varied from about 12 cents for every dollar earned to around 30 cents, but it depends on what you put in. You know, it really does depend on what you put in and the quantum of funds raised. Um, what was ubiquitous was the rigour of um, and the ongoing nature of analysing um, your programs and being prepared to tweak and change all the time. But for that, you've got to have resources and people that are capable of doing it and a leadership that's prepared to let it happen. So now the bit you came for. Um, again, there is no silver bullet around major gifts, which I'm sure you all know. And, and a lot of this is stuff that you will understand from your experience or what you've seen or intuitively. So what I've done is pick those things that it was clear to me after the study tour that you cannot have a successful major gifts campaign without. You might have some success um, but a really strong success. I, don't, I didn't see anybody who didn't have um, at least 80% of these things. So know your donor. I mean, that's a no-brainer, but often and particularly older charities will assume that they know their donor rather than seeking to understand their donor and that we will give our donors what we think they need as opposed to what they want. Um, at the major gifts end, you really have to take an investment mindset to what you do um, and you've got to be able to show how the gift will make a difference. There's not a lot of funding of general good works in the major gifts um, sector. So if you can't actually articulate on one page what your case for support is and then pull out the rigorous business case afterwards. Um, and I'm happy offline to share the Heart Foundation's experience in launching a major gifts campaign. The thing I will say is that we had a 30-page uh, detailed business case that an investment banker would have been proud of, insisted on by the chair of our campaign. And once they were happy that it was true and rigorous and transparent, they never asked to see it again. Um, but it was the hardest six months of my life. Um, and it was fabulous. Um, don't expect major gifts to go to general revenue. So if you've got a, CF a CEO, a CFO, a board president, board chair, who actually says, oh, yeah, go out and send that and then it'll go to general good works. We did not speak to – I didn't speak to one fundraising team over there that wasn't able to point to the $100,000 in and the $100,000 out and the impact. Other channels lend themselves to what I call confund or consolidated revenue, um, but not major gifts. Although that said, if you can really deliver for your philanthropists over a five to seven year period, they will just become a supporter of your organisation in a way that they haven't been before because you've built trust um, and you've shown that you have impact. Campaign chair or board chair is absolutely critical you cannot do major gifts by yourself, no matter how talented a fundraiser you are or how deep and vast your experience is because you have a certain limited number of networks and your campaign chair 
whether they're a chair just for the campaign or, you know, they're your board chair, must be willing to do those things. The other thing is that these organisations had large, sophisticated, mostly MBA, not that that's a requirement, but just to show you the level at which people were pushing themselves to become in major gift um, teams, comprehensive, highly analytical and dedicated approaches, but quite soft with their donors. Not a hard sell at all. Um, and as I said before, research and clinical staff um, who benefit have to be there and help generate the revenue. It's not a divide. It's not the dirty side and the clean side of the business. Um, and reporting to donors was absolutely as important as generating the revenue. Boards, 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 boards. Um, a willingness to support and fo foster a culture of philanthropy is absolutely critical. Um, look, I'll leave that up there, but it really is a give or get off kind of scenario. And in some organisations it was absolutely explicit. Um, in other organisations not explicit at all, but the good chairs didn't have you on a board for much more than six months if you weren't willing to open both your wallet and your networks. And that was a feature across the board, less strong in the UK, which I think is a model that's slightly more like we are. I hope you've enjoyed part one of three parts to the Kerry Doyle presentation. Really fascinating insights from some of these organisations around the world and I hope you're learning a few things. What you're going to hear in the coming uh, episodes is a little bit more of how Kerry has started to implement some of these things that she has uh, she's picked up and a little bit more insights into some of the things that, uh, that, she, um, that she learnt along her journey. So we're really grateful to her for not just uh, presenting it at the time but allowing us to bring this podcast to you and to a, so a much greater audience can hear from it. As I said in the beginning, if you have any feedback, if you have questions, if you would got some suggestions about who we might interview in the future, please visit the website voiceforaworthycause.com.au and don't be afraid to fill in a form and uh, give us your feedback. We certainly welcome it. Stay tuned, as I said, for episode two coming soon. On behalf of Lawrence Jackson and myself, Anthony Pearl, thank you for joining us in episode one of Voice for a Worthy Cause.